Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 6, which is on page 1,250 of the Pew Bibles. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book... If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we stand. Our Father, we thank you for that vision of this last day of the bride coming into her lover's arms. And we pray, Father, as we think on those topics and themes now, that, Father, you would cause our hearts to long for that day. And so, Father, live this present life in light of that certain future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take a seat and uh, it would be very helpful if you could take up the evening service sheet and uh, open that passage uh, in Revelation 22. It's a nice easy one because uh, it's right at the back just before you get to the weights and measures, uh, which is always fun if you get a bit bored uh, to read. Uh, don't do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're on Revelation 22 and it's on page uh, 1250, 1250. Now, it's probably not escaped your attention that today is the first Sunday in Advent, as Clive mentioned, 
And um, it's worth saying this, uh, especially if we've turned up since Clive mentioned this, um, and we said each year, but Advent is not a countdown to Christmas, despite what your Advent calendar tells you. At Advent, we remember, as a church, that Jesus will return. Christmas celebrates Jesus' first coming. Advent celebrates his second coming. And because of that, over these next few weeks, we're going to run a series uh, based on the return of Jesus and what that means for you and me now. But I want to start with a question, and it's this. How easy is it to think about the return of Jesus? How easy is it for us to think about the return of Jesus? I guess lots of us are conscious that we live in a society where the return of Jesus is seen as something of a bit of a fantasy. If you, tomorrow at work, go in and start talking about the fact that Jesus will return, people are going to look at you like you've lost your marbles or joined some doomsday cult. In the culture, the kind of idea that Jesus will return is something of a fantasy or something of a joke. Quite literally, uh, Russell Brand's 2015 stand-up tour was called, I've got it here, no I haven't, I've got a password. It's not worth the suspense, but... uh. (laughs) There we go. Second coming. (laughs) Uh, You forgot what I said now about it, didn't you? I said, society sees it as a bit of a joke, uh, something like this. Uh, Jorossel Brand's tour is called Second Coming, and that's the idea. It's a trivial kind of idea from previous centuries that we can kind of laugh about now. But I wonder, even as Christians, we find it quite difficult to think about Jesus' return, or even to look forward to Maybe we harbour secret doubts about whether it will actually be that good. We look at our world now with all its brokenness and we wonder how Jesus could really transform it. Or even if we enjoy this life, how it could even be better. Maybe we feel fear. I know from speaking to Christians over the years, lots fear the process, what will happen. They fear losing their identity, what will happen to their family, and so we push this idea to the back of our minds. Or maybe we do know it's true and we're convinced it's good and we say each week the words of the creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But if we're honest, Monday to Saturday, it does slip out the mind and we focus on the here and now. But in this passage at the end of Revelation, John, the author, doesn't want us to do that. And if we do that, he shows us that we will be missing out immensely He wants us to see that the return of Jesus is not some fantasy, not something to be embarrassed about, not something even we want to forget. So we're seeing this, um, we're looking at this passage at the end of Revelation, it's uh, what people call the epilogue of Revelation, it's like that bit in a film or a novel where the story finishes and you get a couple of words from the author and uh, it can be quite a difficult passage to get your head around because there's lots of different things going on, Uh, I'm not going to cover it all. Um, I can't cover it all, we'll be here all night, Uh, but I just want us to pick up on three things uh, that are said about Jesus' return and why it matters to us. Uh, First of all, I want us to see Jesus' return is true, secondly, Jesus' return is soon, and thirdly, Jesus' return is good. First of all then, Jesus' return is true. See, I think one of the main objections to the idea that Jesus will return is that it just doesn't sound convincing. It just doesn't sound like it could be true. 
But actually, John says the opposite here. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 22. The angel said to me, that's John, these words are trustworthy and true. But the question is, why are they true? Well, he says, look at where they come from. These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, there's quite a lot going on there, but essentially, this is an email chain, an email chain from God himself. Do you see? God sends his angel, the angel speaks to John, and John speaks to the churches. And you see it emphasized again. Um, We hear words from no less than Jesus himself, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Do you see the point again? Another email chain. Jesus sends the angel, the angel speaks to John, and John speaks to the churches. So what John is saying at the end of this book is these aren't my words, essentially. I'm just the envelope. This is a message from Jesus himself. See, the idea that Jesus will return is not some eccentric speculation of some religious leader, nor is it the excessive imagination of some primitive prophet. This is a promise from no less than Jesus Christ himself. And of course, we see this time and time again in the New Testament. Here's some examples of what Jesus says. So also, you must be ready, because the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come in an hour. You do not expect him. Or Mark chapter 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him at them when he comes at his Father's glory with the holy angels. Or listen to these words spoken at Je- when Jesus went back to heaven. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. See, you see the point, don't you? It is true. It is trustworthy. It's words from Jesus himself. But I guess for a lot of people today, that isn't enough. It doesn't feel convincing enough that Jesus says this. And there are two main reasons, I think, for that. First of all, we we don't feel that Jesus saying it is enough proof. How do we know this is true when we just have Jesus' words in the Bible? But the thing is, God hasn't just given us these words. He's given us proof in the resurrection. Um, When the disciples try and convince people about Jesus' return, interestingly, they don't say, just believe me, or I'm right and you're wrong. They say, look at the resurrection. I've put a verse there from Acts 17 on your handouts. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says this, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you see what Paul's saying? Jesus will return to judge. And if you're looking for proof of that, look at the resurrection. See, if we believe that Jesus was really raised from the dead, then it's only natural that Jesus will return again. It just doesn't make sense to say that Jesus has really risen, to ascended to the right hand of the Father, and and for that Jesus not to return to his world. See, if we're here this evening and we've got doubts about Jesus' second coming, I expect there will be uh, in a group this size, it is really a question about the first coming. What happened there? Did the resurrection really happen? If it did, it is only natural that one day Jesus will return. But there's a second reason I think people doubt the truth, and it's because it hasn't happened before. 
So it's hard, isn't it, to convince people that something will happen that hasn't seemed to have happened uh, before. But here's the thing. Sometimes very impossible things happen in our world. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples, some quite fun examples of this. Uh, Take, for example, uh, the example of human flight. Uh, This was said in 1901, not within a thousand years will man ever fly. Do you know who said that? It's one of the Wright brothers, of all people. (laughs) Two years later, two years later, uh, man and woman uh, were flying. Or take these words in 1934 from Albert Einstein, pretty wise guy, I'm told. He says this, there is not even the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable. It will mean that the atom should be shattered at will. Well, he had egg on his face, didn't he? 1942, nuclear energy was harnessed, and in 1954, the first power plant was opened. See, I, I could go on, couldn't I? There's many examples like it. See, the, litter, the world is littered with examples of things that seem impossible actually happening. And just because Jesus' return hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it cannot happen in the future. John says these words are true and trustworthy. See, the return of Jesus is not some joke. It's not some speculation of some doomsday group or some embarrassing claim by some uh, overexcited religious leader. It is a true and trustworthy promise. There's a great moment in um, that first Star Wars film, uh, the first of the last ones, it's hard to keep track which one's the first one, um, the first of the new ones, which are in the last couple of years, The Force Awakens. Um, I don't know if you remember that bit where uh, they're talking about Luke Skywalker, uh, uh, Ray and Han Solo are talking about Luke Skywalker, and they're, they're trying to find out where Luke Skywalker has ended up, and Han Solo says to Ray that um, there's this rumour going around that he's in the Jedi Temple. And Ray turns to him and says, what, the Jedi were real? And Han Solo says this, I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, a magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Crazy thing is, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it. It's true. And lots of us in our culture are like the old Han Solo, who hasn't trusted these words. They think it's a lot of mumbo-jumbo. But God has given us proof. He's shown us that Jesus really will return in the resurrection of his son. The return of Jesus is trustworthy and true. There's a second idea here, though, that I want us to pick up on, not just the trustworthiness of Jesus' return, but also its urgency. See, um, have a look at how John describes Jesus' return. See if you can spot the repeated word in verse 7. He says this, Behold, I am coming soon. And verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Do you see? It's soon, soon, soon. Now, the word in um, English, the word soon, uh, doesn't carry a sort of sense of urgency. Um, Claire will often say to me, are you going to change, are you going to take the rubbish bag out? And I say, soon. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be urgent. In fact, it can take a few days. But this word doesn't mean that kind of soon. It's got the urgency, uh, someone points out, as as the same urgency as the cry taxi. See, when someone cries taxi, they don't book an appointment, they don't delay. The next thing they're expecting is for the taxi to arrive. And John is saying that this is soon. The return of Jesus is urgent, it's imminent, it's pressing. 
Now, I know some of you will be thinking, because I thought it myself, how can the return of Jesus be soon? It's not happened yet. It's been nearly 2,000 years, and it doesn't feel very soon. And you'll read a lot of commentators who will point at this and say, ha, John got it wrong. He thought that Jesus was going to come back in a couple of years, and he took a punt, and he failed. But actually, I'm not sure that's what John is claiming here. Rather, I, I think we get a clue as to what John means in verse 10. Uh, read verse, uh, have a look at verse 10 with me. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, because the time is near. And do you see what John's told to do? He's not to seal up the prophecy. Now, um, that's absolutely fascinating, because in the Old Testament, prophets were constantly told to seal up their prophecy. Have a look at some examples here in Isaiah is told to bind up the testimony, seal up God's instruction amongst my disciples. Daniel is told the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns a distant future. He replied, go on your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time at the end. Do you see the point? In the Old Testament, God tells the prophets time and time again, seal it up, put it away, put it on the uh, bookshelf, because it's not ready yet. But do you see, in Revelation, it's the complete opposite, isn't it? God says, don't seal it up. Don't put it on a bookshelf. Let it go viral, because the time is near. See, what John is saying when he says soon is he's saying that this is the very next thing that is going to happen in our world. It's like the future is bulging into the present, waiting to burst at any moment. There'll be no run-up, there'll be no warning, there'll be no preview. Jesus will appear soon. And you see, of course, that idea in the way Jesus describes his coming as like a thief in the night. I've given you an example on your handouts there. Uh, Paul says this, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now the thing about thieves, um, they're pretty inconsiderate because they don't send you a doodle poll of potential dates they might come around and rob your house. They don't send you an outlook invitation uh, for you to accept or reject. They just appear from nowhere. And Jesus says it will be like that. Now, a couple of months ago, uh, we had a baby. And apologize, I apologize for all the illustrations, but I might as well make the most of it. The thing about babies is, um, you may know this, that uh, you can guess when they arrive, but uh, the babies have other ideas. Uh, It's it's pretty much guesswork. Apart from the C-section, you have to kind of guess when the baby will arrive. And a couple of months off our due date, um, we got that kind of sense that this baby could arrive at any moment. Um, Claire had been to see the midwives, and they made a few funny comments, and the baby was quite big, and it just felt like it was uh, coming soon. And on top of that, I had a phone call with a friend who told me that he delivered his baby 200 metres away from the hospital in his car. And it just made me absolutely terrified, so I wasn't going to risk that at all. And so a couple of months running up to the birth, I made sure we were ready at any moment. We went on holiday to France. I checked where the local French hospital was, how we would get there. I went on a two-day conference to Leeds where I worked out how I would get to the airport and get back to Southampton quickly and hopefully make it in time. And for, believe, believe it or not, for six weeks I stayed within a two-mile radius of our house in Basingstoke. It felt like we were grounded like teenagers again. 
Now, in the end, the baby was totally overdue and he needed to be forced out. It was a complete waste of time. But uh, you see the point, don't you? That expectation of the future, what was coming, the fact the baby was coming soon, it changed our whole lives. It changed the present. The present was always loaded with that urgent expectation of what was coming. And that is what John wants us to see in the return of Jesus. He doesn't want us to just live with the, our eyes down on the here and now. But he wants us to see that every moment as a Christian is one loaded with that potentiality of the future. I don't know about you, but I think for me this is one of the toughest things to do, especially in our world today. Perhaps we're more distracted than ever, whether it's Brexit or general elections or career or children or retirement or relationships, smartphones or our socials. Not necessarily bad things, but they're all things that cause us to put our eyes down on the here and now. And so we forget this cry of Jesus, I am coming soon, I am coming soon, I am coming soon. Now you might ask, how do we build that sense of the future into the presence? Well, uh, that I think comes from what we see in our third point here, that Jesus' return is good. See, part of the reason I think we don't look forward, uh, or at least I don't, to this future as much as we should, is because we're not as convinced as we could be that it is good. But look at what John says about this return in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go, out, go through the gates into the city. Now this city, uh, if you know Revelation, John speaks about this city in the last two chapters. Just uh, pop over the page to chapter 21 and have a look at how it's described in verse 3. John says this, I heard a loud voice, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, the future is not some ethereal experience floating on the clouds, but it is a future where heaven and earth will join together and God will be with his people in a city. And in that city, there will be no more cancer wards, no more crematoriums, no more final goodbyes, no more terrorist attacks on bridges, no more shots fired, no more unsafe streets. No more trolling, no more abusive posts, no more Me Too stories, no more struggles, no more anxiety, no more shame, because God will make all things new. And perhaps we find that difficult to imagine when we look at our world and its brokenness and we think, uh, how can that possibly be true? And perhaps we've got into that kind of mindset that when we experience something good, we're always waiting for that bad news to follow. But notice what John says about this future in verse 14. He says, or rather notice what he doesn't say in verse 14, that blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life. See, there is in this future a tree of life, but there is, notice, no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a small detail, but it shows us that this isn't just another Eden with the possibility of another fall. This is a perfect city where not even your sin we'll be able to mess it up. Perhaps we think of this future 
And uh, we find it difficult to imagine it being that good because we love our lives now. And we think to ourselves, I love my family, I love my spouse, I love my children. Why would I long for another world where that might change? Or perhaps you think to yourself, well, there's things I want to do in my life. I want to get married, I want to have children, I want to spend the pension, I've worked for it so long. Um, I want Jesus to return, sure, but uh, only after I've done those things. But the thing is, this future is so great, it outweighs even the best moments of our lives now. See, the dullest day in this city completely eclipses the days of greatest joy in our world now. I found C.S. Lewis, when I was reading about this, very helpful on this topic. Um, He says often our view of life now and the future is a bit like, um, he compares it to a small boy who just loves chocolate. I mean, pretty much every child does, don't they? Uh, This boy is utterly obsessed with chocolate. He cannot imagine any greater pleasure. And Lewis says, imagine you've got that boy and you explain to him about sexual intimacy. Now, imagine there'd be a few blushes, but the boy, too young to grasp, might say, well, what about the chocolates, though? And you explain to the boy, you say, well, there's no need for chocolates because it's even better than chocolates. And Lewis says this, very helpfully, the boy knows chocolates, he does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position, we know the sexual life, we do not know, except for glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Do you see the point? There's something greater. And we get so fixated on the greatest things of this life, sexual intimacy, chocolate, whatever it would be, that we cannot imagine anything greater But John says the opposite. This day is even greater than anything we can imagine. There is a wonderful prayer that rings through this final section, and it's that Jesus would come. Verse 17 says this, The Spirit and the bride say, come. And verse 20, He who testifies to this thing says, Yes, I am coming soon. And it is a prayer that we as a church are invited to join in with. This is a future that we're called to long for with John and the rest of the church. See, I asked a moment ago, how do we build that sense of the future into the present? And I think this is how. See, if there's something good on the horizon, we don't need to be told, think about it. We just think about it. You know that excitement of starting a new job? The nervous anticipation of going on a first date? The expectation of a child, the joy of seeing a friend after a long time. You don't need to be told to think about those future events. You can't help it. And that is what we see here. When we see that Jesus' return is true, that it is soon, that it is good, we cannot help but cry, come Lord Jesus. That is, of course, assuming we are ready to meet him. Because there is a little reminder here that without Jesus and his work, none of us would be ready. See, when Jesus returns, he will make everything new, but he will do that by destroying all that opposes him, everything that pollutes the goodness of his creation. But he says there is a lifeline, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. See, to to wash your robes is a way of describing out that Jesus' death, it's the way of benefiting from his work. 
See, our deeds on our own are like filthy rags. We would not be able to enter this city. We would be like those on the outside. But Jesus has done the work to bring us in, to wash our robes. And so if we've not done that, he invites us while we can to come to wash our robes so that we may too enter at this city of the future. The return of Jesus is true. The return of Jesus is soon. And the return of Jesus is good. Let's pray. Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.